I want to ask you first, just do you mind running down just kind of a brief synopsis of what the movie is, is all about and why you decided to make this one? Endings is about three people who are strangers to each other at the start of the story, and they all um, are facing their deaths on the same day. They're all dealing with the, the probability or, or possibility that they're going to not make it another day for various reasons. Um, and at some point in the story, they come together, uh, they meet, and then they begin to realize this um, that thing that they share, and they, they go on a sort of journey together um, to help one of them fulfill a, a last uh, wish or request. Uh, so it deals with issues of, uh, you know, facing death. It also deals with um, family issues and who we consider our family and um, and what's the most important thing in our lives. Basically, it's asking the question, if you had one day left and you knew it, what would you do with that day? What motivated you to write this movie? Well, I had the idea of doing a story about three people um, and what I really wanted to do was introduce you to three characters, but not in the traditional way that most films do that. I didn't want to uh, tell three interlocking stories uh, for an hour and a half. I wanted to tell three short stories of individuals and then bring those individuals together. So the, the structure of the film is that um, each of those individual stories plays out um, by itself for you know a chunk of time. And then we'll cut to another individual, and, and we'll see that individual for a chunk of time. And, uh, and then the third individual. And then show how those three stories eventually come together. So it was, a, it was in part a structural, structural experiment to see if I could tell these three stories separately and then bring them together. And, it, and then once I came up with that idea, it, it was trying to determine what would bring these three people together. And I hit on the idea of three people who were dealing with the same issue, and I, I thought uh, dealing with death, I thought dealing with death um, would be a, a poignant uh, and interesting thing to explore. So why don't we talk about the challenges you face in the sense that you're not the stereotypical filmmaker who holds himself up in his apartment for three months and uh, writes this and has all the time in the world to do it and all that. Why, why don't we talk a little bit about how you set this up with students, obviously, sure. the, the why you do that way is because you're here at Baylor. But why don't you explain some of the challenges that you face with that? Sure. So I, as a, a professor at Baylor, uh, I teach film and I teach production. Um, and so one of the challenges is, of course, I'm a full-time professor and, and, um, and I'm also a full-time uh, father and husband. Mm -hmm. and, but I'm a filmmaker. It's hard to balance those things. So the best way to balance it, I've found, is to integrate uh, those things together as much as possible. Um, uh, working at Baylor and teaching film at Baylor gives me the opportunity to work with students who are passionate about being in, a part of the film industry, who want to learn about that. Uh, so we have set up a, a situation here where students can um, take a, a course in the summer that's a basically a film workshop course, and they can get credit for working on a film that is um, supervised by a faculty member. Uh, in, so in both the feature films that I've made, we uh, offered it as a class. I wrote and directed these films, and the, uh, the students were comprised roughly 90 to 95% of the crew. Um, so they, again, they're getting credit for that, and they are um, doing every job from production design right down to the, you know, dealing with the food table. <laughs> um, we have them rotate through positions so they can learn different roles. 
uh, on the production, and uh, so they can have a lot of different experience. Uh, some some roles we don't rotate because they're critical that we have yeah. to have some consistency in there, um, but often we'll we'll rotate most of them. Uh, we I, I like to tell people that what we sacrifice in experience, we gain in enthusiasm, because the students are happy to be there, love mm-hmm. what they're doing, they bond uh, like people who are you know uh, in a summer camp um, yeah. because they're all in this together and it's really you know these 10 to 12 hour working days where we're all together um, it's a great experience uh, it makes it possible for for me to make a, a truly independent feature film for very little money um, because of the resources we have at Baylor and because the students are so eager to work with us what are you know you, you mentioned uh, the resources you have to work with um, what, what are the what, what what kind of structure do you have? What kind of resources do you have or don't you have at your disposal? We have one of the major resources is equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have um, good production equipment uh, and lighting equipment and audio equipment, and of course we're we're enhancing those uh, resources every year as we can uh, with with limited funds, but we we do pretty decently. Um, so that's a huge part of it. The other part of it is we have professionals uh, on the faculty who know what they're doing in terms of mm-hmm. film production. So um, my colleague Brian Elliott has produced both of my feature films. Um, other colleagues have worked, um, you know, people who aren't even here anymore have worked in on audio on those films or, you know, with the camera crew in some capacity. We have uh, really solid um, high-definition editing equipment, so, you know, we can keep all of that stuff in-house. We, In terms of at least the resources, the, the equipment-based resources, we can do all that in-house, and it, we don't have to expend any money for that. So, so between equipment resources and human resources, that's a, that's a big part of that. Now, beyond that, we also have relationships with alumni who um, who do this kind of work regularly, uh, and who are happy to, uh, you know, occasionally take some a slightly lower salary to work on uh, a feature that Baylor is doing because they love Baylor and because they they want to work on a, an interesting independent feature film. And we have relationships with actors and, and professionals around the state and, and throughout the country really now um, who we can call on to say, hey, you know, I want to pull you in for this part. It's a small, you know, independent film, but, you know, we'd love to have you. And, you know, they understand the, the limitations that come with that. But they're, they're, again, it's it's all about the material. It's are people interested in the script? Do they, do they find it something that they, they think is rewarding that they want to be a part of? And then the relationships help us to, to secure those people. And even one of your resources, even your daughter in this case. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, and that was, you know, goes back to that integration of uh, family job and filmmaking. Um, I, I decided on this film that I really wanted to integrate my family into the process rather than me just going off for three weeks or four weeks and making a film mm-hmm. without them. So I wrote a part with one of my daughters in mind. Uh, of course, I didn't know if she'd be able to play it when I wrote it, but I hoped that she would. I at least wrote it with the visual of her in my head to, mm-hmm. to help me form the character. And then I auditioned her for it and, and worked with her to see if she could handle it. And, and you know, so far, the reviews have been really solid on her performance. Uh, uh, you know, one of the festivals that's screening it, the festival director uh, said that the strength of her performance was one of the reasons that the film uh, was selected for the festival that that he watched the film just waiting for weakness to show up in her performance because it often does in in child performers and he said he just got through the whole film and he was amazed at how how well she sold the role how realistic it was and how effective she was in it so that was 
uh, great gave me a great deal of satisfaction. That's cool. <laughs> and it's Emma. Emma, yeah. And, and how old was she then and now? Emma was ten when we shot the film. She's twelve now. Ten, twelve. Okay. Well, let's talk about that. It was it was two summers ago. I remember we did a story here on mm-hmm. KWBU uh, two summers ago as you were shooting it. So. I know this is kind of a quick way to go through about 18 months, but why don't you kind of tell us what happens between the end of shooting in the summer of 08 and what it takes to get things done and get this ready to be shown. What, what, what's the post-production? Post-production is probably one of the least known about processes. Um, it's just, uh, you know, most people know you're shooting a film and then the next thing they know the film is out in the theaters and and the process can be pretty fast when you have great resources like the studio the hollywood studios have lots of resources they have people working full-time on just this film Uh, of course we don't have that so the first part of the process is to get all the footage into the computing system that you're going to edit it on Uh, and for us that's that's a it's a long and tedious process often now it's short the process has been shortened by uh, the fact that we're now recording to memory cards, and so the footage is already in a computerized format, but we still have to upload it to the computer and then sort through it and begin to edit the film, which if you look at a film, you may not realize this, but you look at the number of uh, different times that the the shot cuts to another shot in just an individual scene. It might be 20 or 30 times. And, you know, you manually have to make all of those cuts on a computer. Um, so we go through the the first step is to focus on the picture. You're you're editing for um, what it's going to look like, where all the cuts will come. And of course, sound is going along with that, but you're not you're not really uh, doing anything special with sound. You're focusing on picture. What we say is that we're working towards lock picture. So when we lock picture, the meaning we're not going to change the cut of the images anymore. Then we begin to take what sound has come with those images and clean that up. In our case, the the picture cut took uh, much longer than I anticipated it would take. We initially had a student um, working on the the first cut, and he did a great job in putting the film together and giving it some structure. But of course, he was a student. He was still learning some of the principles of editing. And uh, so so after he finished the first couple of cuts, we hired a professional editor in LA to take it the rest of the way home and finish the film. And uh, on one occasion with my, with my first film, we had a, a cut we had the whole film done the uh we we finished shooting in august and by the following may we were done picture sound everything in this case by the following may i think we were just wrapping up the picture uh the picture cut with endings so it took us almost almost 10 months 11 months to just finish editing the picture cut and then after picture comes messing with the sound and if we hired a, a professional sound designer um, again, a, a friend of mine who's a Hollywood sound designer and a filmmaker himself. Uh, and he then takes that and begins to build all the soundtracks that go along with the dialogue we recorded. And we clean up and edit the dialogue to make it sound better. And that process we had intended to be just over the summer. So by the end of the summer after shooting, we would we would be done. Well, it, it just dragged on a lot longer because there was a lot more work to be done than we anticipated. And Again, these were people who were giving extra time to this film. It wasn't their full-time right. thing. So um, so after the sound design was done, then we had to um, put it all together, merge the sound, 
with the picture. And we had uh, some technical difficulties because of uh, the sound and picture for some reason weren't in sync. And that took us some months of wrangling why these things weren't going right. And so it took quite a bit of time uh, to finish. Now, for an independent film made the way we made it, it it's not really that long. About a two-year post-production process is not unheard of in independent film. Uh, certainly, if we'd had people working full-time, we'd been able to pay them full-time wages to work on it. We would have had cut that in half, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Um, but, you know, that's fine. I, I, I'm more interested in getting it right than getting it fast. And just to clarify for the listeners again, during this whole time, you're cycling through three semesters, summer school, a full teaching load, taking over the film and digital media, I mean, taking the, the head of the pre- film and digital media department. I mean, it, life is going on in the midst of all this. Yes, yes, absolutely. It was, it, in fact, it was a busy year, a busy couple of years in a lot of ways, uh, because I also was going up for tenure uh, here at Baylor and, um, and just, yeah, between becoming the director of the film and digital media division, going up for tenure, teaching my regular teaching load, um, <laughs> and trying to finish the film in the background essentially, yeah. because that it no longer, when you're shooting, it's a full-time thing, but when you're in post-production, it's often the, the background buzz of trying to do that. You're, you have other people working on it and you're commenting on their work and asking them to, to redo things or just, you know, every, every day is a new challenge. So yeah, it's quite a challenge to try and finish that as side work. Mm-hmm. So eight, about 18 months, or maybe not quite 18 months, maybe more like six, 14 to 16 months later, it seems like um, you've got the, uh, if not the finished product, close mm-hmm. enough to the finished product in your hands. Oh, yeah. At this point, basically only the people involved with the movie have seen it. Why don't we start going through the process now of how you get this out there? How do you get people to, to see this movie? So when you know it's wrapping up and you kind of know that, okay, this is going to be the year, 2010 is going to be the year, what do you start doing? Well, we, we start looking at, the first thing we have to do is we have to get the film done to a, to that degree of satisfaction that we feel like the picture is cut right. That this is the film we want to show. Now, then I mentioned that sound design would come next, but often we'll have a sound mix that's temporary so that people can watch the film and listen to it. And it doesn't sound awful, but we, you know, it's not complete. It's clear in many cases that the sound is not complete, but it doesn't sound awful um, because we what you want to do is start sending it out to film festivals and to potential distributors. The idea is to get it seen mm-hmm. so that people will want to put it in a theater or release it on DVD or, or you know, some um, something like that. And one of the ways to, to do that is to get it to film festivals. If you're an independent film that no one's heard of and doesn't have any stars in it, you have to build buzz somehow. And film festivals are one of the main ways that you do that. Um, certain, some people do uh, what they call four-walling, where they literally rent theaters and... Um, you know, build buzz themselves in a in a city and show the film on their own dime. They'll make some money back on the the theater rental by selling tickets, and they'll build buzz for the film that way. Um, I don't have the the ability to do that just from a time and money standpoint, so I've always gone the film festival route. And then I start you know sending that film when I think it's complete enough to send out. And that's a, there's a big debate about what's complete enough. Some people say just wait till the whole thing is done, sound design and everything. And some people say, um, you know, as long as the, you know, it's it's cut the way it should be cut, the sound can be finished later, people can tell the difference. Uh, it's very hard to say that that's accurate. But um, so we start sending it out to film festivals and, you know, everybody targets the Sundance Film Festival deadline because um, Sundance is the biggie. And they only, for feature films, they only show world premieres or U.S. premieres. Uh, so you have to go to them first if if you want to get in. 
Um, so they, their deadline is always in, um, I think, September. And uh, so, you know, we targeted that after the first year. You know, we um, finished the picture cut. We had a, a rough sound mix. And we worked um, several long nights the last week trying to get that final um, cut out onto a DVD to send to Sundance. And then send it to a bunch of other big festivals as well. And then you just get back to work while you wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you keep finishing the film while you wait to hear from them. Uh, of course, we didn't get into Sundance, or or you would have heard that before. <laughs> yeah. you, you've applied to Sundance, but you've okay. got, I mean, you as a film guy, you know, have probably no limit to the number of film festivals that you're aware of mm-hmm. across the country. What's the process of applying like? Is it is it long? Is it one that once you've done it once, you're just kind of copying? Mm-hmm. Like, take take us through that process. Sure. Is it something you have to replicate over and over again, or do you have to replicate a lot of the work? How does that happen? It used to be that every festival had its own, like, paper form that you would literally have to fill out, you know, the entrance name, the film's name, a synopsis of the film, all the, all the information that you would expect to put down, you know, just demographic mm-hmm. or, or addresses and things like that. And that entering every festival involved filling out one of those forms, whatever their form indicated, they're all different. Um, and then, you know, putting that in with the film and mailing it to them with a check. And, and every festival has an entry fee. At least almost every U.S. festival has an entry fee. And we're talking like 40 to $50 per entry. So mm-hmm. it's not a cheap thing when you're entering right. a number of festivals. Uh, one of the revolutions that's come out, thank, thanks to the Internet, is a service run by a company called Without a Box, which I think they're actually owned by Amazon or by IMDb. I'm sorry, IMDb. Um, and Without a Box is a festival entry service where nice. festivals subscribe to uh, Without a Box service, and then filmmakers sign up for a free account. You fill out all the information for a film and all your information, and then you just say, you click on, okay, I want to apply to this festival and this festival and this festival, and you pay the fee through Without a Box, and then without a box submits all your information to the festival for you based on what they've requested, but you already have entered all that information once. And so all you have to do is then print off the form and um, put it in an envelope with your DVD and send it to them. So it has streamlined the process. One of the unfortunate side effects is it also means that some of the smaller festivals have way more entries than they used to have. So all festivals have gotten incredibly competitive because... Um, you know, it's so much easier to enter now. So it's it's caused an uptick in festival entries for people who, who choose to use it. I mean, that's maybe a good thing because with the economy being what it is, a lot of festivals have had to shut down. Yeah. And keeping those festivals going is a good thing. That's interesting. So how much of when you apply, how much of it is send this in and hope and sit back and hope? Or is there any aspect of salesmanship to it? Uh, there's a lot of debate about the, you know, some people will say, you know, your film should look, uh, really professional. You should have a nice box and, you know, a printed DVD cover and stuff like that. And some people say, uh, some of the festival directors will say that the nicer the DVD box looks, the worse the film inside is going to be when it comes to independent filmmaking, that people spend too much time crafting this beautiful DVD cover because they're, they're so convinced their, master, their film is a masterpiece, when in fact the film, they didn't spend enough time on the film itself. Uh, I'm kind of in the in-between mode where I don't want to I don't want to give them a, a the festivals a negative impression by looking like an amateur, uh, but I also don't want to spend tons and tons of time on crafting uh, a marketing campaign because the festivals, uh, and the really good festivals especially, are mostly concerned about the quality of the film. Uh, certainly politics and celebrity culture comes into this. 
festivals are in the business of selling tickets and um, and making money. Ultimately, even the ones that want to be about artistry still have to make money to stay afloat. So that's why Sundance has a lot of films that were made by celebrities or have celebrities in them. Um, it is what it is, you know. So it's harder for uh, truly independent filmmakers like myself who who don't have any celebrities or don't have the money to to bring in, um, you know, A-list actors taking a pay cut to do a small role. Uh, you know, I just can't afford to do that with the level I'm working right now. So, you know, that's fine. I'll, I'll continue to get into some festivals that aren't as concerned about that. How many have you approximately, how many have you applied to? For endings? Yeah. Um, probably 30 to 40, I mm -hmm. guess, so far. Uh, we're, you know, we, there's still, I'd say 25 of those that I still haven't heard from that, okay. you know, are still pending and we've gotten into two so far. So which two were those? Uh, we premiered at the Seattle True Independent Film Festival in June, and then we will screen at the Atlanta Underground Film Festival uh, in late August. So is it kind of like almost just the sense if you get the envelope and it's like the kid getting the college acceptance or rejection letter, like you kind of open it with some trepidation? or Unfortunately, it's not a paper envelope anymore. It's all by email, um, and, it, and it just depends. You know, yes, you get the rejection email. You see an email from a festival, and you... You don't know if it's a it, – because you don't have the paper envelope, you don't know that it's a thick or a thin envelope. So you don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. But, um, yeah, you wait for those emails and then uh, it's it's elation or it's depression for a day. And then you just move on. I mean there's no way to not be disappointed that you don't get into a festival. But um, I usually answer that disappointment by um, turning around and entering it into another festival the same day just to – to reinforce the notion that, well, that's just one festival and hope springs eternal and, you know, we continue to send it out. Well, it is, a re I mean, rejection probably for an independent filmmaker has to be, I mean, that's just ingrained in the process. Absolutely. Not? Yeah. I mean, you know, most people will tell you that um, if you're approximating a 50% acceptance rate, you're, that's incredible. You know, mm -hmm. now some films will, you know, will blow that out of the water and, you know, it becomes a film that everybody wants uh, and they'll be in, you know, 75 to 80 percent of the festivals they they enter or you get to a point with some of those films where they don't have to enter. Film festivals actually contact them and say, we'd really like to screen this. We heard how great it was. Um, but, you know, that's not the point I'm at right now. So for me, if I'm if I'm hitting 20 to 40 percent acceptances, then I'm feeling like I'm connecting with with audiences. And And personally, I make films that are not um, ultra-mainstream films. Some independent filmmakers do make, like, a, a comedy that, with big celebrities, would be a studio comedy, you know. Um, I choose to make things that are a little more esoteric, and, like, I described endings. It's not the, it's not yeah. the kind of thing you'd see at the, um, the multiplex, you know, which mm -hmm. is fine. That's why I make independent yeah. films. So. Mm -hmm. um, so it's going to connect with less people by default. That's what independent film usually is. Well, do you kind of... I mean, you probably have festivals in mind in some places that maybe target kind of the maybe have the kind of is there a theme kind of what you're going for that certain film festivals hit there are some themed film festivals um there are themes like genre oriented themes like sci-fi or comedy um there's even erotic film festivals <laughs> i haven't entered any of those that's nice <laughs> my work doesn't really hit that target <laughs> yeah. market um uh, and there are wider uh, themes like underground and independent film festivals, which um, are often interested in stuff that would play not play to a mainstream audience. You know, a lot of those film festivals are looking for stuff that um, that doesn't make it to the multiplexes. The the kinds of films that 
you know, independent filmmakers from all over the country and all over the world are making that are really interesting and hard hitting and, and, you know, tell complex stories. And there are people out there who want to see those things at art house theaters. And um, that's why art house theaters stay afloat. It's why independent bookstores stay afloat, you know, because there are people who are interested in complex stories and, and thoughtful presentation. And so that that's one of the areas that I usually target is those independent or underground film festivals, because they tend to be interested in that stuff. My work really isn't underground in the sense that one way underground is used is um, really edgy um, horror stuff and and really kind of pushing the envelope in terms of morality and those boundaries. And that's not that's not my work, right. but it's underground in the sense that it's um, it's complex and difficult and challenging work. Now, as we look ahead here, it's a uh, it's early July. You, you've gotten in a couple. You're waiting on a few more. What what does the next uh, what what does what do these next few weeks kind of hold in store as you check your email, as you continue to try to get the film out there? Well, it's a, you know, it's funny because my work has slowed down a bit because I'm uh, – I work on the film has slowed down a bit because um, and now it's just a waiting game. Mm-hmm. Um, I could be uh, doing some more PR work and beating the bushes and trying to, you know – figure out ways to get it screened. And uh, and I am doing that in, in small ways, trying to arrange screenings in places that I have uh, relationships with people at universities and things like that um, because it helps to spread word of mouth. And um, But right now it's mostly just a waiting game and trying okay. to get into festivals. And once you do get into a festival, then beginning to um, tap the press in that area and try and get them interested in writing about the film and give them an angle in which mm-hmm. they will help publicize it. You know, you have to publicize for yourself with a lot of film festivals because the festival is publicizing the whole festival. Right. So how do you get people to come to your screening? Well, they want all the screenings full, but they're not going to take the time to advertise in individual films for the festival. So you have to kind of work with the press and get the word out about your film and try to connect with, you know, that's the hard part is, that, you know, it's going to play in the Atlanta Underground Film Festival. Uh, I live in Texas. I, I have some connections in Atlanta because I'm from there. But, you know, I haven't lived there in 20 yeah. years. So, so uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think about ways to you know, capture the, uh, you know, the market there and, and the independent press and get them interested in writing about an independent film. You know. well, that's one thing I was going to ask. You know, does the internet make that a little easier in the sense that you don't have? There's so many more options out there. You don't just have to call the Atlanta Journal Constitution and get on page D37 or something. There's like targeted websites Absolutely. and things. Yeah, there's, there's, um, not only are their websites targeted for certain areas and it's easier to connect with those journalists, but also just using the web to research mm-hmm. uh, independent newspapers like Creative Loafing is an independent newspaper in, in, that's in Atlanta, among other cities. And, you know, I, I wouldn't know how to get in touch with people at Creative Loafing if I didn't have the Internet to be able to research that. So um, part of it is finding those outlets that if you're not in that area, there's no way to know about. And part of it is is there are some of those things that are, are online and will write about it. And as my film has my films have played in different outlets around the country, um, I've connected more with online press uh, because they're often independent kind of press that that want to write about these kinds of things. Now, um, if you were writing to Creative Loafing, trying to sell them on an angle to your movie, what are what's a couple of examples of angles you might try to sell them on covering? Usually, what I try to do is um, uh, just make them aware of what the film's about, where else it has screened, and it's coming to the city. It's an independent film. Um, maybe try to connect uh, my own, um, in this case, with Atlanta, that I have a, a connection to Atlanta, uh, and that, that might be a connection they're interested in. Usually it's about trying to find what angle about your film is something that 
someone would be interested in writing about, whether it's somebody, a connection to the city or a connection to the art scene or, you know, something like that. So that's the challenging part, because if your film is not something that would specifically connect to a specific city, uh, it's hard to get them to notice or care. <laughs> that makes sense. And maybe this is an unfair question, but I'll ask if you like, let's just say you hit like around your target, which is like the low end of the target you said was about 20%, which mm-hmm. would be about what, eight, about eight film festivals. Tangibly, what does that mean? Like, is there, can you tangibly say what that would mean to the film to get into those festivals? Um, no, it's, it's actually hard to put anything tangible on it. What you're looking for ultimately from film festivals is gaining audience and um, getting people to be aware of your work on the low end of things, what you, you, you know, you're somewhat satisfied that there are audiences that say, oh, this is a film by Chris Hansen, uh, and I saw it, and I liked it. I'll look for his work in the future. So mm-hmm. building audience for yourself as a filmmaker. But the, the upper end of what you're looking for is a distributor to take on your film and release it to a larger audience and market it to that to those audiences. Uh, so it takes it out of your hands to a certain degree. Not to say that you don't have responsibility right. to market your work, but when somebody else is trying to make money from your work, then they they begin to market it more aggressively than you ever could because they have the business to do that. Uh, and that's ultimately the higher end of what you're looking for is a way to get your film out there to audiences to make money, uh, because uh, not because for me profit is the primary motivator, but because it is a business. Film is a business mm-hmm. and if you make money, that gives you opportunities to make more work and to make work of a larger scope. Yeah. Uh, so you can't deny the fact that even if you're an art house kind of filmmaker, your film has to make some kind of money for people to take an interest in making more films with you. Yeah. And I guess everything that we've talked about, I mean, it's probably easy to sum up to say there's just a lot of highs and lows in being an independent filmmaker. There are highs and lows, indeed. It, um, you know, I remember with my first feature one of the highs was we played at the Virginia Film Festival, which is um, connected to the University of Virginia. And it's a very, um, it's a curated film festival. It's not a big marketplace film festival. It's basically they're choosing films around a specific theme and they're just playing really interesting films. And the Charlottesville, Virginia crowd is just in love with this festival. And, you know, they're a great literate movie going crowd. Mm-hmm. And my film played there. And I remember going into the theater and, and sitting in the back and waiting because I was, you know, about 20 minutes early. And um, watching the theater fill up with people and then watching the movie with a crowd full of people and doing a Q&A afterwards. And that was one of those high points, you know. Yeah. But low points <laughs> are all the rejections yeah. and occasionally the uh, blistering critiques from people. One of the things about um, getting your work out there is people are going to respond to it. And uh, it's funny because one of my films is on Hulu now. And as I've I've gone to that page a couple of times and... You know, just random strangers watch it and and write their reviews, and that's what the internet provides for. Mm-hmm. And um, some people uh, take your work seriously and consider the the merits and the you know the the bad points. And some people just write it off because it's free to them on the internet, and who cares, you know? And and so the challenge is coming to terms with the fact that something that you put tons and tons of work into doesn't connect with somebody. And and not only doesn't connect with somebody, but then they they just kind of dismiss it, and that's mm-hmm. that's the worst feeling as a filmmaker if someone's just kind of completely dismissive of your work. So that's the low point. But the high points, connecting with audiences and hearing them laugh or you know cry or whatever it is that your film is trying to draw from people, and knowing that um, that your film affected somebody, that's the high points. Now I know as we wrap things up, I know you've been working on a book and you've been working on a number of things. But uh, do you kind of have the next idea in the hopper? I'm writing the next film right now. 
I am about probably two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through with the first draft of the script. Mm -hmm. um, it will need some work, no doubt, um, but uh, summers are a good time for me to write, and um, I have felt, I have an idea that I felt inspired by. You know, Endings was, uh, for us, for a very small film with very low budget, it was a, um, a large scope. We had a lot of locations, well over a dozen locations, probably 18 or more, and um, and 30-plus speaking parts, which is a lot for a low-budget independent film with student crew, yeah. and pro possibly too much. Not to say that I think that we didn't accomplish what we wanted to accomplish, but it was it was work that wore people out, and uh, and you know we shoot in summer in Texas, Central <laughs> Texas. The heat is pretty intense, so um, so shooting in the heat, and you know uh, you can only ask so much of people over a five-week shoot, ten to twelve-hour days, um, before they just give out and don't want to do it again. Um, so one of the things I was determined to do was to make the next project a little more manageable in terms of locations and people. So I'm writing something that's much more contained, a smaller number of characters, smaller number of locations, one or two primary locations where we can spend a lot of time, maybe build the set and, uh, and kind of have some control over those things rather than be dependent upon um, sure. you know, traffic in the street and things like that. So it's that's one of the challenges of doing this kind of work is kind of not just do I have an idea, but do I have an idea that I can actually do? Because mm -hmm. I have lots of ideas that I that I begin to write, and I'll, uh, I might set those aside because I want to focus on the one that I'm going to shoot next instead of this one, which I might sell if I write it really well and somebody wants to buy it. But uh, more and more these days, I want to write things that I could do. So maybe I'll be able to write things that I could do, and there'll be larger scope when I have bigger budgets to work sure. with in the future. But at the moment, you know, I'm going to continue to do what I'm capable of doing. Any chance we get a sneak peek at what you're working on now, or is that for off in the future? It's for off in the future, yeah. I'm not ready to disclose yet. Okay. So. <laughs>